0: So welcome to the uh, very first Britain's Energy Coast Business Cluster podcast Um, and I'm delighted to say that uh, we're welcoming a a very distinguished guest with us today. It's uh, Tim Stone, the chairman of the Nuclear Industry Association. Um, From the Business Cluster we have myself, Alex Granger and Adam Pearson, so welcome both. First of all, Tim, um, thank you very much for your time, really appreciate it. Um, How is the, the new job going, I suppose, is the first question, a few months in post?
1: It's a lot busier than I expected. (coughs) The job spec says 25 days a year. I think I've done about 40 so far. So um, I'm having a lot of fun, but I took it on. Basically, I want to try and help make a bit of a difference. And part of the reason I came up here was I wanted to actually see the real side of um, West Cumbria and not just individual facilities, which is what I've seen before. Um, But I'm basically having well over time. Excellent, very good. And um, in terms of your trip up here so far, um, did you come up this morning? I came yesterday morning, then spent yesterday afternoon going around some local businesses to see what's going on. Um, and that was a real I mean, some of the creativity here is just breathtaking. I mean, if the rest of the world could see what you guys do, I think they'd be in for a real shock. So we saw a fantastic out of yesterday called um, <coughs> Fourth Engineering. Mm-hmm. And they make the cleverest little robot gadgets. And the, the creativity and sparkle there is just breathtaking. It's you know, a really good example but th- I mean just the stacks around here and the creativity that's been driven through from, it's basically the nuclear industry but it, it's, it's a regeneration both economic and socio-economic and those industries are really good. You don't tell the story very well. Yeah. I've been really, really surprised and, and delightfully surprised because before I'd been here to see Sellafield you know, and the, uh, the, the official stuff, yep. there's so much more to it than that.
2: It's your first time at the Cluster this morning isn't it as well it Tim is. and how have you found that so far? Well, that again is—it's <coughs> a—it's a very impressive organisation. The outside world doesn't see this. We
1: hear, we see the name, and I obviously know Ivan from, from other contexts than Miranda. Um, but it's again, a real eye-opener to see exactly what you guys do and the reach you've got. Um, and the thing that's hit me so far is that there's a hidden gem up here. You lot, as a, as a group, the, the, the business cluster, and more widely, you need to gang together and tell a story. You need to pull it all together and put. Put forward a real presentation of what you do because at the moment I, you, we see bits of it, but nothing like the impact that's actually here.
2: Definitely, and, and you were saying this morning that it's so important to the, for the, the cluster and the NIA to actually work together on the sort of shared shared vision as well.
1: It's really important for the NIA <coughs> to be a focal point for all the groups like you, whether it's it's here, it's the um, um, uh, the NG Island on Anglesey, uh, the guys down in Somerset, people in um, uh, in Sizewell. We need this all grouped together so we have a consistent view and we can all leverage each other's ideas. So our job in Whitehall with the NIA is to try and help drive policy. Out with the membership we need to be helping, supporting and working with the members. But all of us together need to be sharing the same vision and messages to make sure then that the entire universe hears this chorus of approval from all of us and not lots of different voices. So one of the things that the the business of can do now, I think, is to provide for West Cumbria that focal point for a single consistent view of the world and a single consistent messaging around the place. Yeah, totally.
0: So, so something that we've had for a number of years in the, in the region is a steady work stream from Sellafield, um, and there's been a number of different supply chain companies that have popped up. Um, and as you've seen over the last couple of days, there's some really impressive technology and, and, and capability here. But something that we've struggled with is really um, taking advantage of the globalisation of the nuclear market. Um, obviously we had the first commercial nuclear reactor here in, in, in Calder, um, but we haven't quite uh, managed to get a, a foothold in, in the international market. How do you see the business cluster? And the NIA working together, along
1: with the other stakeholders you mentioned there, to really exploit that global opportunity. I think, <coughs> to be honest, historically, you've had so much going on here that there's not really been a reason to focus on the outside world. No. Um, the history is really important, and one of my other jobs is I chair the nuclear risk aso- insurers, who and we insure three hundred and twenty-four licensed sites around the world. Um, we were set up for Calder Hall because you couldn't start it on until we were created to provide the insurance structure that worked. Everything's been inwardly focused for the last 60, 70 years. We have to do something about turning it around and what the NIA wants to do, <coughs> what I want to do, and I want you guys to do, is I want us to be much more, um, first of all, from your point of view, setting out what you've got, not just we're here in Sellerfield, but the industry skills. How do I present that to the outside world? And then from the NIA, I want us to work with embassies, both in London, from foreign countries and British embassies around the world to get the message out and to try and help, make sure we find the ident- the the opportunities and link things up, which is not about saying <coughs> when country X says um, we need some help with decommissioning, we shouldn't turn around and say here's a catalogue of 57 con- companies. Absolutely. We should come back and say go talk to these three or go talk to these three. Actually, focus it down on guys who are really good at this stuff, because to start with, we have to build more of a reputation abroad as a general maxim when you're building a business you start by building a reputation then build your business because without the reputation nobody takes notice of the business we need that reputation building and so i hope the nia and the business cluster can work together to for us to provide a conduit for you through but you then to provide the, f- the focusing of the skills and the uh, the innovation up here that we can then Um, help export.
0: Super. So so in the area of late, we've had a little bit of bad news in in, um, New Gen unfortunately, um, uh, going away and and Moorside not necessarily being developed right now. Um, Do you see any any sort of future for Moorside as a site and potentially um, as a site for SMR development or or something
1: else in the nuclear industry? Moorside's a great site. (coughs) It will be developed for something, that I have no doubt. Um, Just like Wilver, and I'm still on the board of Horizon, so that's also another one of these horrid shocks. But the lesson there are two lessons from both of them. First, that you can't do this as a developer-led model. The price of building these sort of projects is just too big. So we have to look at a different way of doing it. Second thing, though, is that in any rational decarbonized future, where you're decarbonizing not just uh, light, but transport and heat, you need a shed load, actually a cubic shed load of electricity. (coughs) <coughs> and the cheapest way of getting a cubic shell of electricity is still nuclear. Um, the numbers out of Horizon, um, and these are mine numbers, not Hitachi's numbers, but Greg Clark in the House Commons said units one and two will be 70, 75 pounds a megawatt hour or less. If you build units three and four on the same site, just by get, getting rid of the first-of-a-kind first cost, the licensing, GDA, all that sort of stuff, the only thing you have to do there really is another DCO, The savings between Units 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 takes about £20 a megawatt hour off the strike price. So you're down into the bottom half of the 50s. That is stunning. And if you keep on going and build a fleet, that gets you, in my calculation, down to the 40s. -hmm. So I was Abu Dhabi's advisor on the ENEC programme. They've done it. They've built the stuff on time and on budget. You can do it. And what we have to do now is we, we need to do what the renewables guys have done, which is to build and keep building. And as you've seen, the strike price of renewables have crawled down from 150 quid, eventually down to the 50s. None of that's being built yet. The stuff that's being built is still much more expensive than that. Um, but we need to, need to take the progress through. And when you realise that the price of renewables at the moment that's actually generating is about 55 to 60% more than Hinkley, where people get really upset. Yep. You know, we need to be driving the build through. Now, whether side becomes a gigawatt scale reactor site, or lots of SMRs, I don't know. I don't particularly care because they're all of them just kettles that boil water and spin turbines. Okay. All I care about is the cost of the output at the end. Mm-hmm. So something will happen it's a good site, just like Wilbur, and it's an unfortunate timing spasm because of the financing mechanism not working properly, but we will definitely get there.
0: So, so how do we square the circle of the finance issue? Do you think it's government investment required?
1: Uh, Well, Horizon was going to have investment from not just Hitachi, but British British government and Japanese government. So we'd already got that sort of direction. But the work that's going on at the moment is using the same techniques that we use to finance the water industry in the UK. Um, Thames Tideway, which is the super sewer project in London, is the the particular example. And to adapt that for big infrastructure like nuclear, and it's called RAB, Regulated Asset Base. And you'll you'll get sick of it over the next year or so. (laughs) Uh, Because it's all terribly trendy, it's going to solve everything. The thing it doesn't solve, though, (coughs) is you've still got to spend the money to get to the point where you can start work. And that is still going to be costing, for a big one, around a billion. For little ones, I don't know, because nobody's actually produced a comprehensive business case so far that says exactly how you get to FID, final investment decision, um, what the costs are, and indeed what the elements of cost are for the generation in the end. So we've got a little way to go to see how it works. It'll get there. But RAB is the, is, the, is the future of this at the moment. We think it's going to work. Um, I should be very fascinated to see how the, the work develops because nuclear and conventional uh, water and Thames it are very, very different projects altogether. But there's no reason in principle it can't be made to work, so we'll see where it goes.
2: Sure, yeah. So you mentioned, Tim, that um, you've only been in post for a short time, just a few months. What sort of led you to, to joining the NIA and also sort of what have you done before that in terms of what, what's led to this point in time?
1: Okay, well, the <coughs> I kind of didn't entirely volunteer for the job. I was um, asked if I'd like to do it, um, but I got a bit of, bit of recent form. So my first involvement, well, no, my first involvement with nuclear was when I was eight. And I found, it was, so it's not long after Hall started, I found a book in the local library explaining how reactors worked. I was sort of, ooh, that's rather interesting. I'm a bit of a geek. And I already knew at that point, I knew a little bit about atoms and molecules and atoms had electrons and I had no idea what they were, but you know, I got the idea. Um, And ever since then, there's always been this sort of slight, "Ooh, it's very interesting and geeky and fascinating and blindingly obvious to some degree. But in 2004, I'd been doing some other work for government on the rail review. And I was looking at what's going to happen with decarbonisation and the penny dropped for me that you had to have a big chunk of nuclear in it because it's low carbon. So I did a paper for Treasury just on my own, about 50-odd pages on um, why you need to do it, how you do it, who builds them, how how the projects work and so on, and talked a bit about the challenge of financing it. Um, Then um, got tapped on the shoulder in the end of 2006, would I go and help government work out how to pay for the um, waste and decommissioning of new build to make sure we didn't dump it on our grandchildren? Uh, And that was Treasury. Uh, asked me to do that with um, what was then DTI. I'd been in there about six months (coughs) and um, was then asked, well, yes, it's fine being advised the Secretary of State on waste and decommissioning for new nuclear, just sort out new nuclear. So then got roped into the wider policy developments. And so I spent, um, I worked for five successive Secretaries of State, starting with Alistair Darling, ending with Ed Ed Davey. not as a civil servant, not as a politician, absolutely not but sort of somewhere Mm -hmm. zombie-like in the middle, Um, and was chairman of the Office of Nuclear Development, uh, did the review which took the regulator out of, the safety regulator out of the HSE, and created the independent ONR, and was um, then heavily involved, for example, in when the Germans decided to sell Horizon. (coughs) Um, When the Germans designed to sell Horizon, um, I was with the government going around the world talking to potential investors to buy it, in China and in Japan, Um, So a lot of fun with that. And then just carried on. So in the meantime, I became chairman of nuclear risk insurers, as I was saying earlier. Um, So it's just been one of those happy accidents. So it's like my entire career, because I'm originally a theoretical chemist. Um, (coughs) Realized too late that the guys who taught me had tenure, but were only 10 years older. So I was gonna be ancient before I got a proper job. Mm -hmm. And of my two employable skills, one was IT. So I went to what is now Accenture to do Big, big stuff. Uh, the other one was, I'm a double bass player, and I thought briefly about becoming a professional bass player, and thank God I didn't. <laughs> Terrible wow, life. Yeah. Um, but went from IT to uh, running a software business in uh, a big money center bank in New York. Then sort of hopped over the fence and got involved in, in doing the deals and became a banker. And doing big projects, channel tunnel, rail link, the rail line, financial load of Eurostars, TGVs, aeroplanes. So I've had all sorts of fun. And every single time I've moved, it's not been because of some grand plan. I mean, quite the opposite. It's usually involved uh, a jolly good lunch and somebody saying, how do you fancy doing that? And me going, oh, that's rather interesting, why not? Mm -hmm. So it's always been looking for things that are interesting with people I like and that's actually what I'm doing now. So all the things I do now, uh, I'm also on the board of Arabs and it's with people I like, with doing things I'm interested in. Well, the one thing I said to both my kids is I don't care what you do for a living, but you should enjoy it, pick things you enjoy. And I say, if you ever come home moaning about your job and saying you don't enjoy it, you'll get no sympathy. Go and find something that you do enjoy. Absolutely. So h- how much um, do you interface with uh, sort of the
0: outgoing chair, Lord Hutton? I mean, I, c- I guess you guys are pretty close. You seem to be uh, good pals at the uh, dinner
1: in December. Well, John was one of the ministers I worked for. Yep. Um, and I knew him for quite a long time before that. In fact, I was w- helping him think about welfare to work when he was at DWP. Um, and if you go back there, he brought in a guy called David Freud to do a big report on welfare to work, well, David was a former colleague from Warburgs. So I've known John for a long time, and (coughs) he's a class act, and now he's chair of Energy UK. We have a huge amount in common, and I hope we can both help each other make a difference.
2: Brilliant, yeah, sure. So you've sort of taken us on on your career there uh, through most of the steps then, but where did it kind of all start for you, Tim, in terms of like geographically and in terms of education?
1: So I'm a Yorkshireman. Um, There's a bit of accent left, I think. Um, It gets slightly worse when I'm back over there. Um, But uh, I was saying to you on the way up here, uh, all my family moved up to Sheffield area for coal and steel in the late 1800s. Local grammar school boy, went to Oxford, um, got completely in love with the place, just became fascinated by the geeky end of science. Um, I quite like making homemade explosives, you know, I'm that sort of (laughs) geeky guy. Amazing what you do with a bit of iodine and ammonia. But I'm I'm just a native Yorkshireman who's um, hoping one day Yorkshire will declare UDI and then I can uh, have a passport somewhere else.
2: Great. And you went to university um, to study chemistry. Yeah. That's
1: right. Although I spent rather a lot of time playing the bass instead, so I had to to work really quite hard in the last year. Mm, Excellent.
0: So moving from chemistry into nuclear, what was the
1: sort of transition between the two? It's an element really of having been trained as a scientist. you don't lose that. It's like being an engineer. Once you've been trained as an engineer, it just affects the way you think. Um, And so when I was first brought in to um, look at waste and decommissioning, the fascinating thing there was I said to all the um, reactor vendors at the time, uh, I need to understand the nature and quantity of wastes that your reactor produces so I can work out a bit about the problem. And um, three of the four were really helpful, brought in loads of data Explained very simply and quickly what was going on. Fourth one came in, um, and I obviously won't tell you who it was. But they said they had a um, a very special technique to reduce corrosion in the primary circuit by using a different isotopic mix of boron in the cooling water. And I said that's fascinating, but I don't understand how that might work. And uh, would you please explain? And they said no, they wouldn't, because it was a um, a trade secret. And I said well, that's fascinating, but. Let me just show you something I got a whiteboard and a felt tip and two pages later a bit of quantum mechanics and the (coughs) the reaction the reaction rate variation is the square root of the ratio of the two masses of the two isotopes so that science stuck and basically the the square root of the ratio of the um, isotopic masses of boron is near enough one and so I said either you've just defeated Einstein or you're lying and I don't mind which, I'd just like to know. <laughs> but until you've explained, don't bother coming back. Or words to that effect. <laughs> I don't have any problem after that. Excellent. So I think the,
0: sort of the uh, superpower in the nuclear industry at the moment is definitely going to be well China with the amount of plants they've got coming online. Um, obviously, in terms of, sort of inter-country um, relations, they're a little bit rocky at the moment when it comes to sort of cybersecurity, etc. I know there's some nervousness from MI6. How do you see that relationship going over the, next, over the coming years?
1: It's obviously quite delicate. <coughs> I think we have to recognise the fact that China as an um, economic power is, is here. It's not en route. Um, I said downstairs, you know, the, the Chinese, early part of the last decade, decided they wanted some high-speed rail, and by the end of next year they'll have 30,000 kilometres of it. Yeah. When the Chinese decide, decide to do something, they do it properly. Mm-hmm. And it's been clear for a long time that the Chinese have been very focused on Um, nuclear power. Um, I'm I'm pretty certain that at some point the Chinese as a nation will decide that low carbon matters because as a society they think intergenerationally in a way that we don't and I can quite see them at some point saying they have to go low carbon really hard for the future of their society and when they do that they'll probably expect their trading partners to do the same. They're here and we might not like it and we might have missed the boat in terms of we're not back to the superpower that we were Fifty years ago, but if you go back in history, pre-1700, as a society, China was immensely powerful, and you know they've they faded a bit um, over the uh, um, the 18 and 1900s, and they're back again. So we have to deal with them, and why wouldn't we? You know they're perfectly competent nuclear engineers. They've been building consistently for the last 30 years, which we haven't. And it's been fascinating to, to go around <coughs> Chinese sites, and particularly CGN ones, where they work very closely with EDF. You know, for, for a long time, quite a lot of the Chinese sites have been included in EDF fleet operating stats because they work so closely together. So yes, we ha- yes, it's a, a, um, a difficult time. I don't by any means think it's, it's at all impossible. Um, and we need to work with them. And interestingly, they have realized that they have to adapt to our culture and they can't just march in and take over in a bit the way the Brits used to do you know, 100 years ago. We march into countries and just speak slower and louder until people understood, the Chinese, um, one of the guys, describe themselves as being wrapped in a Union Jack. They're trying very hard to, to localise and adapt. Um, so we we will deal with them. But they are, they've got it. They they absolutely understand that nuclear is a big big um, part of their future. Uh, There's an academic paper last year where the government asked um, some university gurus to look at: Could you build 500 gigawatts of nuclear in the next not very many years? And it was essentially, physically, can you build them? Have you got the manpower? Do you have the skills? Is there enough fuel, Etc. And the paper eventually concluded that yes, there was. Now, a state like that doesn't, from top government level, commission an academic piece of work like that for fun. So guess
2: what's going to happen? They're going to be building. Mm-hmm. So just to bring it back onto you then, Tim, you, you've mentioned uh, musical instruments and you've mentioned your sort of love of sort of science and uh, almost technology, but have you got any other interests in sort of things that you get up to? Um, I do play the bass
1: quite a bit still. And I, sadly, only classical bass, I would give my right arm to play jazz. <laughs> um, so I still, um, I still try and do you know, quite a lot of concerts. And part of the reason is that if you think about it, when you're playing um, in a concert, you're playing notes to you know, the odd few millisecond precision. So the degree of concentration is unlike anything I do anywhere else, you know, sorry guys, I don't work that hard at work. <laughs> <laughs> but what it does mean is that when you sit down for the dress rehearsal, within seconds, anything that's in your head is gone. It's the best mental spring cleaning I can think of. So I do that. Um, I've got some, uh, some grandchildren a uh, fantastic wife without whom I couldn't do any of this. Um, and a 1955 motorbike.
2: Excellent, Oh very So I'm a geek, basically. I had lots of fun. Uh, so one question as well we had, Tim, was um, if you could go back to being someone who was in your early 20s, but with the experience that you now have, what would you do with that knowledge? Two things. Firstly, I had absolutely no
1: idea how business worked. I mean, not a clue. I thought when you bought a Mars bar in a shop, somebody had worked out the exact price of all the components and the labour and the transport and the packaging, and then added 10%, and that was it. The fact that you might. Charge what you could for something, and sometimes it might be an outrageous amount, and sometimes you might not actually make money. It never dawned on me. I assumed it was all I'm a scientist. You know, I assumed it was all absolutely beautifully, accurately calculated. So understanding the real world outside took me a long time, and um, because it's not rational, it's not, at least it's not rational in the way that you think as a pure scientist. So more um, understanding from school and opportunities to do internships would have been fantastic. The other thing was recognising that most of what happens <coughs> in governments, in policy formation, is also not rational. <laughs> the, what goes on in politics, it's, it's not right or wrong, it's a very different value system. And part of the reason I managed to work well with Whitehall in the end was I, I eventually managed to understand you know, the value system, how they work, what matters, how they think. Understanding that a lot earlier would have been easier too. But the final thing was actually one of the things I've said to uh, a lot of colleagues is in general at work, obviously not in a pure nuclear context, but don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. If you have a bright idea, have a go at it. Don't sit there saying, can I, can I, can I? Please, please, will you let me? Obviously you don't break rules. Obviously you don't go beyond you know, s- sensible bounds, but have a go. Have a go and be creative because so often Um, Simple solutions are the ones that people need. And the final thing is to learn to think right at the top, not to look at the problem you're immediately dealing with, but just understand the context from above and what it is above that's saying, please do this, because the outcome you're driving up here, and that's another word that matters, the outcome you're driving to up here is something that you should always focus on. So as you're looking at the, the individual problem, don't get stuck in the weeds. Okay, to, to wrap it up
0: then, our uh, final question. What do you think of Adam's flowery shirt? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have to have a strong personality to wear a shirt like that.
0: Well, Very, very
1: colourful. Thank you. Um, but goes with the character, and, and knowing, uh, knowing his uncle, I'm not in the slightest bit surprised. Absolutely. Excellent. That's thank our you. very own rising star. Yeah, very <laughs> good. Okay, Brilliant. thank you very
0: much, Tim. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Very interesting. Yep, thank sure. you.